Hello, everyone, and welcome to United Teachers of Lowell's Straight Talk podcast. I'm Amy Bisson, and I'm here with Mickey Dumont. We're the hosts of this weekly podcast produced by and for members of the United Teachers of Lowell. In our weekly podcast, you'll hear about local, state, and national issues that affect our members. You'll also hear about some of the accomplishments of our members. We will keep you up to date with news and decisions that impact all of us. On this episode, our very first episode, have you ever wondered why public employees formed unions in the first place? Well, that's exactly what we're going to discuss on this week's show. We're talking today with United Teachers of Lowell President and AFT Massachusetts Vice President Paul Georges about the beginnings of public sector unions and the beginnings of the United Teachers of Lowell. Paul, let's start with a couple of definitions we hear tossed around. What is the public sector and what is the private sector? Public sector and private sector. Well, uh, public sector are employees that work for government agencies or arms of the government. Could be teachers, could be paraprofessionals, could be custodians, city workers, um, you know, any one of number of those groups. They work in the interest of the public as public employees. Private unions, if you want, uh, or working in the private sector, private sector could be construction trade, building trades, could be in manufacturing or anywhere else where, where a group of workers work for a company or corporation. Um, and uh, it can be include a number of different sectors if, if you want to include that. Uh, but, but public sector employees in, in 23 states now are allowed to collectively bargain when they choose a representative union to be their representative at the bargaining table. It has shifted. There were, there were a few more several years ago in some states. Uh, through the effort of ALEC, the American Legislative Exchange uh, Committee, uh, has sent model language to crimp or, if you want to dissuade, or so the different states could adopt legislation that would limit public sector unionism in their particular state. Uh, unfortunately, they've been successful at doing it. But this Janus case has, could have potentially even greater ramifications on that, and that's, uh, that's what we can talk about shortly. But public and private sector unions, uh, generally public sector, uh, private sector unions have diminished, has lost membership over the last, say, from the heyday of the uh, 40s and 50s or post-war uh, World War II era, uh, and public sector uh, unions have flourished. So can... Public employees everywhere unionized, or is no, that just in the states designated? Just in the de- and is Massachusetts one of Massachusetts those? is one of them, along with 23 at this point. Some states have certain limitations on what the public sector unions can do for the for the uh, uh, for the employees in that particular state, uh, and they do vary. But the biggest sort of growth of public sector unions and legitimacy, I think came in 1962 with JFK when John yeah. Fitzgerald Kennedy allowed federal workers with some limitations, for instance, not the, you know, the military and so on, uh, but federal workers to join uh, unions and be represented by strong national unions. And at that point, states like Massachusetts and others uh, picked up the gauntlet and went through a growing 
uh, process um, of uh, representing workers pretty much in every municipality across the state. Paul, historically, what were some of the conditions that lead a group of, say, teachers to form a union? Well, it, it, it's uh, when you have a representative union, and what ends up happening is when a union is selected by virtue of a vote, the majority of employees in a certain group uh, ask to be represented by a union. They That becomes the representative union that represents them in negotiating contracts, um, general contracts, policing the contracts, uh, working general working conditions, and uh, work, working rules, uh, uh, and tries to get language provisions that not, also, uh, not only improve um, working conditions for, for folks, but salary um, and other, other provide uh, the conditions under which employees work. Sure. And it could be other benefits, uh, uh, health insurance uh, provisions, uh, it could be sick day provisions, could be any one of them, and all of those as time goes on. Um, but the, but the, this began in earnest in Massachusetts in the 1960s um, and has continued uh, to this day. So all of us were whippersnappers in the 60s. But historically, do you recall or know what prompted Lowell teachers to form a union? Well, because they, they realized that by acting together collectively, they had more power. Mm -hmm. Essentially, they had more power and they had more persu persuasive arguments, let's say, uh, to um, improve conditions, all conditions of employment, including uh, compensation. So strength in numbers. Yes, yes. At one time it was explained to me, and I wasn't here at the time, but it was explained to me that going to the, very often what would happen is a small group of teachers within the district would go to the school committee and essentially ask that they give them some provisions, whether it be an increase in salary or it be uh, other language provisions that guaranteed, for instance, there was no there was no uh, um, uh, duty-free lunch. Now yeah. that sounds like doesn't sound like an important thing, but it is an important thing it that sure a teacher is. actually yeah. has time to sit and have a 20-minute lunch under contract without supervising students simultaneously, mm -hmm. because not very often it means the teacher doesn't get lunch. Um, but things like that could be. But what ended up happening was that process, disjointed as as it was. Um, it, it took some persuasion and also did something else. It allowed for a certain you know, amount of nepotism, you know, favorable treatment of certain sure. people because they came to the table looking or went to a school committee looking for provisions uh, that would be unique to them. Uh, under a, a union heading, everyone benefited from essentially joining a union, paying dues to the union. Um, and uh, uh, that improvement in working conditions and salaries, compensation rates, and so on. Um, what was important is that they acted in a collective voice. And so, consequently, by involving a negotiating team, you had a general idea about what the membership was looking for, and at that point made presentations and represented, represented the workers, and also took on the additional responsibility of policing the contract once it was signed to make sure that both sides lived up to the agreement. And surely there's strength in numbers and power in numbers. There's no question about it. There's no question about it. But it, 
it, in its infancy, originally um, uh, the the uh, uh, teachers in Lowell were part of the NEA, uh, National Education Association, or MTA, Mass Teachers Association. In the early 1980s, a group was unhappy with that arrangement, and they brought it to a vote. And at that point, the AFT became uh, the United Teachers of Lowell became the Lowell affiliate representing teachers huh. in the city of Lowell. That's quite a bit of history that it I is. think a lot of us don't know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it was yeah. 1983. I think some of the people instrumental in that were uh, Tom Grady, who mm -hmm. was the first president under. Uh, under an AFT banner here, and uh, Bill uh, uh, Farrell. Bill Farrell. Bill Farrell, Mitch yes. Farrell's uh, um, husband, who were mm -hmm. two of the prime movers in pushing uh, for AFT affiliation. Mm -hmm. Paul, when UTL negotiates with the school department slash school committee, it's not just about wages, right? No, it's on. It's all working conditions, mm -hmm. and. and uh, uh, for instance, uh, we just talked about the sick, the, uh, the, uh, we talked about uh, duty-free lunch. Mm -hmm. um, that became, that was negotiated by my predecessors, that, uh, so the teachers actually could have a 20, 20 25-minute sure. lunch. Um, but other thing, too, is some, you, you have a number of things, if the gamut is fairly full about, uh, you know, the, the health insurance that you'll receive from the school department, what percentage they, the school department pays, as opposed to what the employee pays, um, uh, how many days would be in a year, the length of a day, uh, if it comes to class load, it could, it could be how many classes per day you would teach, how many minutes of preparation time you're given within a day, as the case in the elementary where we've expanded that preparation period for teachers. Um, there are a number of work rules that, that are important to make sure that teachers can do their job, mm -hmm. um, and, and uh, working conditions. We have some difficulties now, obviously, with environmental issues in the sense of the lack of heat this winter. And we understand it was a you know particularly unusually tough winter, and now we're dealing with the you know the uh, lack of air conditioning. But uh, as a union, we we lobby as best we can and push as hard as we can to try to make sure the city lives up to its agreement and making sure that the the uh, the buildings the teachers teach in are hosp hospitable, you know, yeah. at least usable, um, and so we act in a number of ways of advocacy for teachers. Great. Um, so United Teachers of Lowell represents about how many employees? About seventeen hundred. And which there are several units. Right? Yeah, several units. We have uh, about eleven hundred teachers. Mm -hmm. I would say probably three, the three hundred and fifty paras, and then. We have a calf workers and custodians that, that bring this number up to about 1,700, 1,680, something in there. Uh -huh. And all of our members are full members of the UTL. I was going to ask that. Yeah. Uh, so what about agency fees? Because we hear about that now with Janice a little bit. Um, what is an agency fee and how does that work? And do we have any members that uh, are members of UTL? With an agency. Yeah, the criticism initially was it's a union has a number of activities, and most of its revenue is obviously spent on uh, settling contracts, making proposals, settling contracts, policing contracts, working conditions, making sure that management stays not only within the confines of the contract, but also uh, observes state law. And the union has the responsibility of looking up for the interests of the employer, the employees in that setting. 
we also act as act as an agent for the t for the uh, children themselves. Um, very often, uh, informing management if there seems to be some violation of a child's civil rights having to do with uh, sped law or, or any other. Um, so we act as, as an agent not only for the, the educators, the educators and the support staff that we represent as a union, but also children uh, in the field. Um, and uh, in making sure that observation stays that way. As far as the agency fee, what ended up happening was uh, with unions, we have a number of activities, including some political activities, although we are not heavily invested as specifically as a union. Um, in political activity, but some monies are paid that are not directly related to enforcement creation or enforcement of the contract. And if a person doesn't want to be a union member, they have right to say, I don't want to be a union member. But in the development of public sector unions, it became common for a union to win at the bargaining table the ability to charge people who were in their unit who did not want to be union members for the service that they receive, which would be a percentage of the overall union dues. And it's usually a percentage fairly close to what full union dues are. It might be mm -hmm. 10 or 15 or 20 percent less. Because someone might say, well, we don't agree with the political position of the union, or we may not agree on some of the... Uh, some of the things the union advocate, uh, maybe uh, uh, reproductive choice, or could be any one of a number of things, um, and that is that, and that became uh, acceptable uh, in in most union states uh, to make sure that people weren't there weren't free riders, people who would benefit from the union, benefit from the contract, benefit from the policing of the contract, benefit from all of those things, and not pay anything at all. So they became known as agency fee payers. Um, and what's happened now is that is under attack. Uh, it's a long standing when agency fee was challenged the first time, what they called the, the Abood case, uh, in 1977, because Abood, who was an individual, said they didn't want to pay dues for anything, and it was illegal for him, them to have to, for him to have to pay for that representation if he didn't want it, but still benefited from it. The Supreme Court at that point, which is a fairly conservative Supreme Court, all nine justices agreed unanimously that it made sense that a person who was represented by a union, didn't want to be, would at least pay the cost of what it cost them to represent that individual. Now, that Abood case was set in 1977, and that has suffered a number of challenges um, I believe there's six or seven challenges, and in every case the Supreme Court has come back and said, no, it is appropriate that people who don't want to be part of a union would pay their fair share mm. or their agency fee to the union for the service they got. And I think the sense was, what's fair is fair. If you're receiving a benefit from some activity that, that a group is, is doing on your behalf, you should have a responsibility. And part of it, I think, was I know in the Abood case, the Supreme Court justices, some of them said, in order to promote harmony, labor harmony, so that there wasn't disruption within the unit itself. And management very often supported that position too, so they knew they had one entity to deal with when it came to collective bargaining and so on.
So it kind of worked for both for both parties in some ways. Uh, and then later, the unions, obviously, as they became more sophisticated, I think, in uh, focus more on sharing information, becoming sort of um, uh, a resource for educators uh, across the country because they had so many members. The AFT, American Federation of Teachers, has 25 million members uh, nationally. Um, they became areas where people could share information about effective professional development, um, sharing lessons, doing a number so of things. So it's not just about contracting. It's not just about contracting. No, it's not. It's also about looking at national policy, too, and the wisdom of it. Now, historically, what has happened is those states that have collective bargaining have ten not tended. They, they just simply outperform the other states that don't when it comes to... Um, and now we're not in favor of, obviously, excessive student testing, but on the NAEP test, the National um, Assessment of Educational Progress, which is considered the gold standard, it's indeed the union states that have the best performance records because, I think in many ways, because of the compensation being better, you're able to retain teachers for a longer period of time, the working conditions are better, so people stay in, in specific uh, specific units, um, and because of the expertise that they share with other states, whereas the states that don't have national organizations affiliated with their local union, if they have a local mm -hmm. union, don't have that benefit. So it's you hear the criticism all the time that uh, you know the unions stand in the way, but I think anybody who really understands this understands that the resources they make available to a community and the members within that unit uh, far outweigh the cost. And it's, it's really has, it does, it does work because the strongest performing states are the ones that have the, the, the greatest union density. And we are going to talk about this a sure. little bit more in depth in the next episode because sure. we want to delve into Janice, the sure. case that we've all been dancing around here. Sure. That's correct. I had one question about that, sure. Paul, as you were talking about that. Would the police and fire be included in the public sector yes. unions? Okay. All but right. there are certain rules that they would be, be... Public sector unions, for instance, in the state of Massachusetts, I cannot strike. They have, they have happened on rare occasions, but cannot strike. Okay. Obviously, public public safety unions, you know, that would be problematic. That would be critical. It would yeah. be critical. Um, but by and large, public sector unions can be public sector at the state level, at the local level, the state level, or the national level. Okay. In other words, work, state workers are part of a union, and mm -hmm. they are, and they collectively bargain the working conditions and, and the compensation and number of sick days and all of those things as as time goes on. Um, so you have you have a, a variety of different unions, but in states where it's prohibited, public sector public sector employees either cannot be represented by a union, only be able to negotiate other things, or in some cases only negotiate salary and wages. Yeah, yeah. So there are, the there's, a, there's a gamut. Um, but Massachusetts is one of the states where you have full representation of all public sector unions, of employees that wish to be part of a union. Um, and uh, it's, it's a, again, a model of Massachusetts' best performing state in the country when it comes to public education, being unionized is not stood in the way of that progress.
thanks for that great information, Paul. And thank you, listeners. We hope you'll take a moment to hit the subscribe button on this page so you can keep up with the most current episodes of this podcast. Show notes and transcriptions can be found on the UTL website at www.utl495.org. In our next episode, we'll talk with Paul once again to understand more about the history of Janus, the Supreme Court case that will very soon affect our union and its members. We hope you'll tune in again next Tuesday for UTL Straight Talk. Let us know how we are doing and be sure to let us know if you have additional topics you'd like us to explore. Until next time, this is Mickey Dumont and Amy Bisson wishing you a great week.